Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Delta Danger, global COVID cases surpassing 200 million. Electric edict, President Biden looks to supercharge EV adoption. And a mean dream, retail investors set their sights on Robinhood. It's Thursday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move and a busy day as always. Robin Hood rallies, but new stock sales are in store. We're also counting down to Friday's jobs report. Will the numbers roar and Biden's EV plans go full bore? And we'll be live in Washington for more. Market action, meanwhile, hard to ignore. US futures, we never do ignore them. Pushing higher once again and Europe is at fresh records. A strong 4% rise in German factory orders helping drive sentiment, I think, too. Today's rally means that the German DAX is actually up more than 14% year-to-date. The French CAC Caron, meanwhile, up 22%. You can see that outperformance there, outpacing. In fact, all the U.S. majors, c'est magnifique, n'est pas? From stock market heights to inflation frights, meanwhile, Brazil's central bank giving global investors a reality check, raising interest rates by a full percentage point. That's actually the biggest hike in nearly 20 years to cool rising prices. And unlike Fed Chair Jay Powell, of course, the Brazilian officials not so paciente on prices. Sorry, my Portuguese is even worse than my French this morning, but that does not hold me back. How do you say sell-off in Mandarin? Don't worry, I'm not going to try. Tencent, NetEase, other Chinese gaming stocks falling. Estate media removes the joystick once again. The Chinese Financial Daily suggested the industry doesn't need tax incentives anymore. If you remember, Chinese media called online gaming spiritual opium earlier in the week before then reversing that tone. I think the overall takeaway here is buyer beware. The Asia session, meanwhile, once again hurt, as you can see a sea of red there, by fears that spreading lockdowns will slow the recovery. And that, sadly, is where we begin today's drivers. The total number of COVID-19 cases worldwide has surpassed the 200 million mark. That, according to John Hopkins University, China, also battling to contain the Delta variant, has just ordered new quarantine rules for some travellers arriving in Beijing. In the city of Zhengzhou, people under lockdown have been calling out for help from an apartment building. I should warn you, these pictures are pretty distressing. David Culvert joins us now. David, I know you've seen those pictures too, and they are distressing, but it shows you the the lengths and the extent to which Chinese authorities are willing to go to in order to try and suppress the spread. We've been here before, and they're taking strong measures once again. We have been here before, Julia, and and I look at those images that you referenced there on social media here, and they're troubling to see, and, and they bring us back to where we were perhaps a year or so ago, when we saw were were described as extreme containment measures, brutal by some descriptions. However, they have been effective. Though we saw in Wuhan, for example, it led to, you know, after 76 days of lockdown, a crushing economy. So there there is a a byproduct of all of this. and, And while it may be containing the virus and the spread, it's also led to mental health issues as well as economic problems. Take a step back, though, and and let's look at the numbers, because we're talking about hundreds of confirmed cases. This linked to the Delta variant, 
And when you look at other countries and compare with what they're dealing with, it may not even rank. It may seem laughable. However, here in China, they have this zero tolerance for any cases. And they've been mostly effective in going forward with that. And so when you see such extreme measures in the lockdown scenarios in communities like that, that's out of Zhengzhou in central China, that's not representative of what's happening everywhere else. I can say here in Beijing, for example, there are tens of thousands of people in similar lockdowns. They're sealed inside their communities, drove past some of them yesterday. They're able to get outside to walk around within the restricted zone, take their pets out for a walk, for example, receive their food, basic necessities. They'll likely be in that for several days, perhaps even a couple of weeks. Now, some of the new travel restrictions have also come into place so as to protect Beijing. We've seen this before. Beijing is a fortress. It's about protecting the capital. Officials here have said, even just this week, that they will protect Beijing at any cost. And that is now coming in the form of keeping people out. And those who do come in, if they've come from those medium or high-risk areas, they will either go into home quarantine or centralized government quarantine. Again, these are things that we have not seen for several months. So it is a shock for a lot of folks, Julia, but it's a reality that's playing out. And the question that's often asked is, how long is this going to last? How long will this most recent outbreak take before they can contain it? Because they're confident they can contain it. This is what one official had to say. Take a listen. As long as all localities strictly implement prevention and control measures, this round of the outbreak can be basically controlled within two to three incubation periods. Two to three incubation periods. So what does that translate to? That could be anywhere from 15 days, so about a couple of weeks, to up to six weeks. And that puts us near the start of what is a major travel holiday here. That's the October Golden Week holiday. And that is when a lot of folks are obviously coming together and will be crowding in the train stations and airports. And it's a concerning time. And so perhaps this will keep many of those from traveling and lessen the spread, Julia. Yeah, and that's why, as you said, and it's an appropriate word, I think the measures that we're seeing now is so brutal in order to to contain it. Very different from what we see elsewhere in the world. David Cover, thank you so much for that. Robin Hood finally memes business, or does it? Shares bounding out of the Sherwood Forest, spiking some 50% yesterday after last week's disappointing IPO launch. But the arrows are back in the quiver today as the firm moves to sell more stock. Claire Sebastian joins me now, but above $70. And remember, they priced it at $38, Claire. It's, there's some irony, though, when a stock like this gets halted three times in a day, of course, admittedly on the upside rather than on the downside, given what we've seen in the past. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of chatter about that uh, for sure online, Julia. But but look, this is what we're seeing over the past few days after a very disappointing IPO, as as you said, not, nowhere near the sort of coveted uh, first day pop that they wanted, down eight percent on that day. We've seen now two days of double digit gains, twenty four percent gain on Tuesday, fifty percent gain on Wednesday. This morning, though, as you said, the stock is down a little pre market, although off its lows of the session because we essentially got a new IPO prospectus. The company is filing to sell. 97.9 million shares. Now, this is not a capital raise. They are not raising money for the company. They're essentially allowing venture capital, some of their early investors, to sell out. It's not going to be immediate, sort of going to be a gradual process. But that, I think, uh, sort of got to some investors coming so soon uh, after the first IPO. And we saw that little pullback this morning. But that might also be partly because of the huge gain that we saw yesterday. And there was sort of a lot going on there, but also nothing at all, because nothing really fundamentally changed with the company. Uh, but we saw 
saw the start of options trading. We saw Kathy Wood from ARK Invest uh, sort of loading up on shares over the course uh, of this week. She's seen as something of a sort of trading guru by the, the retail traders, the Reddit crowd. And there was a lot of chatter about this stock online. Julia. It was one of the most mentioned stocks on the, the Reddit group, Wall Street Bets. And it was the most traded stock uh, on retail platforms, certainly on Fidelity's retail platform. And it still is this morning. So that is part of the, the big picture here. Yeah. And ARK Invest, let's be clear, and, and Cathy Wood's been on this show, she's seen as a sort of bastion of getting involved in these high growth stocks. So, so we can be clear on that. But I did also see that it was the most mentioned stock on Wall Street Bets, which, of course, is a, a favourite of, um, of the retail community. And clearly that's leading to a lot of discussion that Robinhood is now a, a so-called meme stock. So um, what do we mean by meme, Claire, just to remind our viewers? And um, is it? Or isn't it? Yeah, I think we have to define the terms. I feel like a (laughs) a meme stock is where you see sort of big moves in a stock that really aren't justified by the fundamentals or, or sort of news around the company combined, of course, with that chatter online, Twitter, Reddit group, Wall Street Bets is highly influential. All of that is where they, they you know, they publish a lot of memes. That's where uh, all of that comes from. So look, in terms of yesterday's moves, it, it very much did smack of a meme stock. There wasn't a lot of news out of the company. Nothing really fundamentally had changed. And yet at one point in the day, we saw an 80% gain in the, in the stock. So extraordinary moves there. And of course, with that chatter, online today perhaps less so we are seeing you know news driving it but but of course in some ways Robinhood did invite this with their efforts to democratize the IPO to, to sort of stream their roadshow online and bring in retail investors they have brought in that crowd and I think some of that volatility is that effort coming home to roost but of course on the other hand this is a very high growth company and there are many people out there who feel that as they diversify away from their sort of payment for order flow model to to other things including for example crypto that there is more more room to run in this growth story more room to run Claire Sebastian thank you so much for that In Washington, President Biden is pushing for 50 percent electric vehicle sales by 2030 under voluntary targets. He's also boosting emission standard hopes. John Howard is live at the White House for us. John, the president wants electric vehicles to make up at least 40 percent, I believe, of U.S. auto sales by 2030. Clearly, he seems to have a lot of the big car makers on board who've been dramatically bumping up investment in this space. But what do we make of this? Because it is guidelines rather than rules. Does he have the American public on board? Well, that's a challenge of keeping the American public on board. And he's trying to use a variety of tools uh, to make that happen. Um, it's not easy to change the composition of the American fleet. The auto sector is very large. Uh, but what the president's trying to do here is use a combination of uh, goading, exhortation, setting a goal uh, for, uh, as you indicated, 40 to 50 percent of the sales in 2030 to be electric vehicles, Um, incentives uh, in the infrastructure plan that he's trying to move through Congress. There are billions of dollars for electric charging stations. There are going to be incentives for uh, changing American manufacturing to accommodate the rise of uh, fuel cell and battery uh, technology. Uh, And there's also going to be some direct investment. Last week, President Biden uh, announced a Buy American initiative where he's going to try to use the federal purchasing power to change the federal fleet 
over to electric vehicles as a way of jump-starting this market. But you've got significant resistance. Just yesterday, Texas uh, Senator John Cornyn, member of the Republican leadership, was attacking the administration, noting that electric vehicles are more expensive uh, and that the president's mandates are going to uh, result in higher prices for American consumers. Obviously, he represents a big oil and gas state. Fossil fuels uh, are uh, going to resist to some degree uh, this shift, although much of industry sees that's the way the world is going, and so the United States is going to follow. Difficult challenge, but of course uh, uh, the president's climate change goals are also uh, integral to this as well as his goals for the American economy. Yeah, it's funny, when I first read this, my first point and concern was charging infrastructure, um, the relative level of vehicle costs, for example, John, but to your point, and I think it's a really important one, actually, they're trying to tackle this at the same time in the infrastructure bill. So these things inextricably linked and clearly tackling all. The question is, as we've said, will Americans get on board? EVs, that is. John Harwood, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you, as always. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Iran's next president, Ibrahim Raisi, is being inaugurated today in Tehran. The ultra-conservative judiciary chief is taking the helm after eight years of a moderate, relatively moderate administration. It comes as Iran deals with multiple challenges, including nuclear talks and a struggling economy. CNN's Fred Pleitgen is with us from Tehran with more. Fred, I was listening to some of the comments that he made and laying out both the domestic plans, but also the international plans for foreign policy too. And I've just said the phrase, and I'll say it again, inextricably linked in terms of trying to regalvanize and restart and loosening up some of the restrictions on the economy. Can he do it? And where does he go first? What? Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right, Julia. I think you're absolutely right in that there are big domestic plans, especially in the realm of economy, but they are really inextricably linked to Iran's foreign policy as well. And I think both of those fears could change considerably. I mean, one of the things that we saw during the years of the uh, Hassan Rouhani administration is he obviously tried to mend ties with the West. Uh, he tried to mend ties with the United States to a certain extent, tried to get sanctions relief. Of course, the Iran nuclear agreement was really the culmination point of that. And then and all of that, of course, fell apart when President Trump came into office, when he left the nuclear agreement. And then when he put in place that maximum pressure campaign, which, of course, is hitting this country with massive sanctions and continues to exert a massive toll. Now, one of the things that Ibrahim Raisi wants to do is he wants to go a completely different way. He wants to do what's called a resistance economy, which means making the economy less dependent on outside forces. But at the same time, the Iranians are also saying that they want better ties with regional powers. One of those, of course, Saudi Arabia, a big change for the Iranians to try and mend ties there. And just this morning, Ibrahim Raisi was quoted as saying that he also wants to improve ties, for instance, with African countries. So Iran really looking to new markets, new places, also to try and get around some of those sanctions. But of course, they still want that sanctions relief and are still looking to complete those negotiations to try and get the U.S. back into the nuclear agreement, Julia. Yeah, a fine line to walk, Fred Plank. And thank you so much for uh, explaining that to us. We shall see. Okay, let's move on. A Belarusian Olympian who refused to return to her own country is now taking refuge in Poland. Christina Timov. Timonovskaya says she's happy to be in Warsaw after receiving a humanitarian visa. The sprinter rejected a flight to Belarus because she was afraid she would be punished for criticizing sporting officials. Okay, still to come here on First Move, a game of red light, green light for British holidaymakers. We'll hear what the airline industry thinks of all the new travel rules. And Makeup's digital makeover, the CEO of Gen Z favorite Elf, on how to sell cosmetics during a pandemic and beyond. That's all coming up. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to First Move. Southeast Asia's largest bank, DBS Group, says second quarter profits are up 37% from a year ago, beating expectations. Just to give you a sense on a quarterly perspective, that is down some 15% on the first quarter's record profits. This, as DBS is rapidly pushing into new technologies, including a blockchain-based payment system and a digital exchange for fundraising through asset tokenization, just for starters. Joining us now, DBS Group CEO, Piyush Gupta. Piyush, always fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it feels like another Good solid quarter. Welcome. It feels like another solid quarter where you seem to be able to balance the challenges of, of low interest rates, which I know is keenly felt by your bank. And of course, the challenges of COVID with growth and performance in other parts of the business. Just talk us through what you saw during the quarter. Well, actually, uh, you make a good point, Julia. The overall situation with the virus, the pandemic in Asia has not been great. And certainly in the last few weeks, uh, the spread into Southeast Asia has actually been quite alarming. So in that context, it's quite surprising that business momentum has been very, very solid. And frankly, continuing to look very good as we go into the third quarter. Uh, loan growth was very strong, and that was uh, in multiple sectors, the property sector, uh, the TMT sector, technology sector, uh, shipping logistics. I think the Asia export engines have been strong, and that's helped some of the activity. But the property markets have been very strong as well. And this, uh, I think, a lot to do with liquidity and low interest rate. Uh, and so outside of the balance sheet, actually, for us, uh, even the non-interest income lines uh, were extremely good. Wealth management activity was strong, transaction services. Investment banking has been good. It's not a big business line for us, but the year-on-year -year growth has been quite dramatic as uh, companies are rushing to get to the debt capital markets. And even the ECM activity, the equity activity in Asia, has uh, been a little bit of a beneficiary of the China-US tensions. So mm. uh, all in all, can't complain. Business momentum has actually been surprisingly strong. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you that because I see that too. Um, why? Why have consumers and, and small and medium-sized businesses been so resilient? I see it even in the, the sort of lack of delinquencies that you've seen in some of the, the credit sphere as well with, with loans. Is it government support? Is it... Um, that people perhaps had stronger individual and, and company balance sheets perhaps than, than, than we anticipated. And to your point about the last two weeks, and it is alarming, what are you, what are you seeing in terms of behaviour even in the last couple of weeks from, from people? Well, I think the resiliency has been a surprise to everybody, including mm. me. Uh, we buffered up a lot last year, bid reserves. And like many of our global counterparts, uh, we found ourselves uh, sitting on too much uh, 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 provision and actually have had um, been able to reverse some of that. I think the three reasons. Number one, uh, what you talked about was correct. I think government measures, fiscal policies have been in place. Our monetary support has been helpful. And in many parts of Asia, uh, moratoriums have been in place, which have been extended out till the tail end of this year. In fact, in some cases, early next year. Uh, mm. Second, I think the inherent uh, resiliency of both the consumer and the small and medium enterprise has been proven. Uh, even as some of our clients have been coming off moratoriums, it's quite interesting that the delinquency rates have been very, very low. Uh, but finally, I think uh, what's been a big factor in the portfolio quality has just been the sheer low level of interest rate. So debt servicing capacity is there just because uh, interest uh, rates are low and therefore it doesn't uh, take too much to be able to service debt. Now to the second part of your question, the last two weeks have been concerning. 
And uh, it's quite interesting that uh, most of the countries in Asia are reverting to various levels of uh, lockdown. You know, Asia in some ways has been hoisted uh, by our own petard because in many of our countries, the, the, the social distancing, the masking, the tracking tracing, and the lockdown was so successful uh, that uh, we did not necessarily feel the urgency to go for large-scale vaccinations. Obviously, in part, it was uh, driven by the fact that uh, they weren't able to procure the vaccines. Uh, nevertheless, the actual vaccination rate in many of the countries is very, very low. Mm -hmm. And now that the Delta variant is uh, spreading, uh, is uh, bringing to sharp realization to people that we really have to step up on the vaccination program. But I think it's going to take a few months. And so I think projections for consumer spending coming back and the reopening of some important sectors, tourism, travel, etc. I think there's going to be pushed back by at least a quarter, maybe even two. Do you think it pushes the sort of growth outperformance in favor of the West rather than what we've got going on in the East and in Southeast Asia, at least for the next perhaps six six to nine months, to your point? Well, Julia, it's all relative because, yeah. you know, despite all of the slowdown, China will grow at 8%, India will grow at 8 9%. Um, and uh, many of the rest of Southeast Asia is still forecast to grow 45 to 5 So while it will be slower from the original projections by a couple of percentage points uh, for India and maybe, you know, half a percent, a percentage point for Southeast Asia, uh, in absolute terms, it's still not bad. Uh, also, remember, everybody's coming off a low base, so all of these numbers look great in uh, comparison. One thing that's keeping Asia going is just that the demand from the U.S. and Europe has been very strong. And Asia, the export engines are really chugging along. Uh, it's quite interesting that most countries have learned how to keep the factories running, uh, even in the face of the pandemic. And so that's one uh, uh, driver of growth, uh, which is very much in place. Yeah, a core pillar of ongoing uh, growth performance. Um, I could talk to you about this for the rest of the show, but I want to talk about your digital innovation and what you've got going on because you're a traditional bank in some senses and not where uh, digital innovation is concerned. Um, and you've been busy. There's a couple of things. Um, you're operating a digital exchange, which I think is quite fascinating, a, a platform that allows the issuance of digital tokens for things that are backed by financial assets. So the way I see it, it sort of unlocks the value of companies that aren't perhaps listed. It allows you um, access to, to perhaps some, some of the upside there. But you're also swapping fiat currency for digital tokens like Bitcoin, XRP and Ether. Um, talk to me about what activity and how much engagement you're seeing with, with this part of the business. Well, we're, um, as you said, our digital exchange actually has got three dimensions to it. Uh, one is the tokenization and listing. We've done a fixed income issuance. Uh, we're on the verge of doing a property issuance. Wow. And eventually, uh, what you said is correct. We hope to be able to list the Series B, Series C illiquid stock. Uh, it's a little bit more tricky, so that might take a few months coming. Uh, the second part of the activity is the exchange activity. So we're converting fear to uh, uh, the cryptos, but there's a lot of trading activity on the cryptos. And finally, we have digital custody activity. In fact, in some ways, that's the unique selling proposition because it gives bank-grade custody as opposed to having to custodize your coins or your assets on the exchange itself, which has obviously been subject to some degree of challenge in, in other situations. Now, one thing we've done, though, is we've not gone into the mass market with this offering. It's a member-only exchange. Mm -hmm. And that's because we want to be very careful about not getting ourselves burned, uh, both with regulatory oversight, but frankly, with the cyber and cybersecurity issues around it, also anti-money laundering, etc. So at this stage, we have only about 400 customers onboarded 
these are all wealthy customers, active traders. Uh, I'm actually quite pleased with how progress has been in the second quarter. Uh, we did about a couple of hundred million bucks in trades. Uh, assets under custody about 150 million bucks. So it's not in the billions yet, but it's step by step and heading in the right direction. It's fascinating, but you're you're effectively using your know your customer requirements for existing customers and mapping it because you want to be incredibly safe and careful about who's engaging in this space. And, and are they doing it for investment purposes? They're sort of buying and holding. They're buying and holding and trading purposes, uh, Julia. Remember, our, our unique selling proposition, our differentiation, if you will, is that this is an exchange launched by a regulated banking entity. And, um, you know, the custody elements of it are actually indeed regulated. The exchange elements of it are not directly regulated, but by and large at an entity level, MBA supervises everything. Um, we also, you know, our, our focus through the middle of the crisis last year was how do we use the crisis to good effect and try to position ourselves for the future. Uh, so we were able to do a couple of m and transactions. But on the digital front, our focus was trying to see how we take some of the blockchain and AI technologies that we've been able to build for ourselves and monetize them, take them to market. So the digital exchange was one. Uh, we've also uh, in the uh, launching a carbon exchange um, in partnership with the Standard Chartered, uh, Temasek, and the Stock Exchange. Uh, that we expected to do our first carbon credit trades before the end of the year. Uh, we've launched one more blockchain activity along with JP Morgan, um, which is, um, uh, and Temasek again, which is a stablecoin uh, blockchain-based payment system uh, to uh, facilitate and uh, intermediate uh, or disintermediate the T plus two settlement model that we have. Again, we're building a network of banking partners and hope to get the first trades on that done in the next couple of months. Uh, so a lot of exciting stuff happening, a lot of that to do with blockchain. This is so exciting and I'm being told I've run out of time. So I'm in this awkward situation where I've got 10 other questions I want to ask you and I have to thank you and let you go. Please come back in the next couple of months because this is fascinating and this could be, I think, revolutionary for uh, foreign exchange flows and speeding up settlement for trade finance as well. So, um, Piyush, we shall reconvene on this conversation. Fascinating to see right. what you're doing. And I look forward as well. The Sovereign Wealth Fund is involved too. Mm-hmm. Piyush, great to chat to you. Piyush Gupta there, the CEO of DBS Group. Always a pleasure to chat, sir. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are trading the day before the all-important U.S. jobs report, of course. And we do see a higher open in the United States, higher by some four-tenths of 1% for the Dow, as you can see. U.S. jobless claims in focus once again, remaining below the key 400,000 level, continuing claims. So those people that continue to get benefits hitting their lowest levels since the lockdowns began too. New numbers yesterday showing U.S. services sector activity rising to record highs, a sign that the American recovery at least remains firmly on track. A number of Federal Reserve officials saying yesterday that they're comfortable with trim stimulus support as early as this year. Adidas, a market underperformer, meanwhile, currently down some 5% in German trading. The sports apparel maker raised its full-year guidance, but the ongoing consumer boycott in China continues to weigh on sales, and that clearly a concern for investors. 
Now from Sunday, the rules are changing for British holidaymakers hoping to salvage a summer vacation. Seven more countries have been added to the so-called green list, meaning Britons visiting them from England, Scotland or Northern Ireland won't have to quarantine on return. The seven include Germany, Austria and Norway. Meanwhile, arrivals to England from France also won't have to quarantine if they're fully vaccinated and test negative. However, Mexico's now on the red list. That means 10 days in a government hotel for those returning. Airlines UK, which represents several major carriers, is warning the British travel recovery lags behind the EU's. It says bookings in Germany are now at 60% of pre-pandemic levels, while in the UK, it's just 16%. Tim Alderslade is CEO of Airlines UK, and he joins us now. Tim, great to have you on the show. I mean, that statistic actually says everything. What do you make of the government's decision and the additions to the green list? Because clearly, I'm sure you were hoping for more nations to be added. I mean, it's it's always positive to get more countries onto uh, the green list. The problem is that we're now into uh, August uh, and the summer season is almost over. So we've not had anything like the recovery uh, that we were banking on. Um, we were the first sector to go into uh, the crisis last March and airlines that have taken on billions of pounds of debt um, and shed tens of thousands of jobs. We're relying upon getting getting back into the full swing of things and having a proper reopening this summer. And we now find a situation where we're going to have to now try to somehow get through the winter, which is when airlines traditionally lose money. The summer is when they make their, their, their cash and revenue and their balance sheets are replenished. We have to get through to next March, April with very little revenue coming in. Um, and I think that's the problem that we've got. The government has been far too slow to reopen uh, just 16 percent of 2019 levels compared to uh, other countries across Europe that has reopened much quicker than, than we have here, despite the fact that we went into uh, the summer with a vaccination dividend. And I think uh, the tragedy is that the government has squandered that uh, dividend. So I think the government has got some uh, hard questions now as to what they do with aviation and international travel, because um, with tens of thousands of jobs already lost um, and the furlough scheme being wound up at the end of September, um, I think they need to look very carefully about an extension of that scheme for aviation, which has not had that reopening that we were relying on. They had the vaccine dividend, of course, but they also had rising cases, Tim. Do you have some sympathy for the government that they are still trying to balance the two things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a global pandemic and we always knew that this summer was not going to be um, a normal summer. It wasn't going to be 2019. But I think if you look at the uh, vaccination rate here in the UK and the fact that we got off to such a quick uh, start, uh, we've now got uh, case numbers relatively um, under control. Um, and the rest of the the rest of Europe and the US, uh, for example, have caught up with us in terms of vaccination uh, rates. So we were hoping, uh, looking at those uh, stats, that we could reopen uh, quicker. Uh, we could open some of the big, uh, you know, volume markets across Europe. If you look at the countries announced yesterday, Germany, uh, Slovenia, etc. These are not traditionally the countries that people want to go to during midsummer. Um, you know, if you look at the uh, the impacts of the last uh, 12 hours or so, the big uh, spike in bookings is to Spain, to Portugal, to the Spanish islands, to Greece. That's where people are really looking to go uh, to. But we, we've still got restrictions to those countries. We've still got uh, very expensive uh, testing uh, requirements. Right. Uh, everyone coming into the country needs to take a PCR test at day two. So, it, you know, that that is the kind of restrictions that I think is just frustrating everybody. Um, alongside the constant changes to the uh, to the list, if you look what happened with France, and now France has come off the uh, the amber 
uh, plus list and people just don't know if they're coming or going, frankly. Yeah, it, I have to say, as I was reading and trying to make it easy for my viewers to understand what's going on and the changes, I was just sort of bewildered myself. And it's tough to keep up and it's tough if you're trying to, to book a holiday. I guess some people would say the message is you just have to perhaps travel less, but that doesn't help the industry and those that you represent. What's the greater burden here? The, the quarantine, the constant changes or, and you highlighted there, the cost of testing, because for some families actually trying to get everybody tested on the way in and perhaps on the way out too, depending on where you're going, is, is prohibitive as well. Yeah, and the government is now uh, all of a sudden advising that uh, travel from Spain, um, you have to take a PCR test uh, pre-departure as well as um, on arrival, uh, which is just not uh, something that other countries across Europe uh, are doing. And uh, on average, it's around £100. Uh, it adds to the cost of a of a flight, which, uh, you know, we don't want to go back to a situation where air travel was the preserve of uh, the wealthy. We somehow have to, um, for, for double-jabbed uh, passengers and those coming in from green countries, can we move to lateral flow testing on a, on a daily basis or, or even no testing at all? There are countries across Europe that do not uh, require uh, a test on arrival if you are fully uh, vaccinated. And uh, I think people are, are really frustrated. They, they, they're desperate to get away, um, but they just don't know with this constant uh, you know, changes on a, on a weekly basis. I think the government uh, yesterday was saying, look, we've now got three weeks until the next review branch ups said today we don't want people looking over their shoulder but i think it might be too late people are either saying we don't want to book a, a holiday this year we will go in the winter or they've booked um, a staycation here in the uk and that doesn't help um the aviation sector and it doesn't uh, help the tens of thousands of jobs yeah. that rely upon uh, aviation and, and travel uh, direct jobs for aviation is over five hundred thousand here in the uk we've already lost just in the airline sector thirty thousand jobs and with that furlough scheme coming to an end in September, we are looking without government support at a significant uh, number of uh, redundancies, which would be a tragedy for a sector that came into this pandemic as the third largest um, aviation network anywhere in the world. It's traditionally been something we are very good at. And uh, the worry is that we get really deep uh, permanent scarring because of uh, the, the inability to reopen and the reluctance of the UK Treasury to provide the support that perhaps we, we needed to get through this pandemic. Yeah. And I think I think you highlighted the key point here. People can actually do without holidays, but the jobs need protecting. So if they can't handle and make this simpler in terms of the arrangements, then they have to take a very close look at that furlough scheme and very quickly to give people some assurances that the jobs will remain. Tim, great to have you with us. And uh, I'm sorry you guys are so challenged. Um, thoughts are with you. Tim Alderslade, the CEO of Airlines UK there. Thank you. Okay, up next, the Gen Z beauty brand that bucked the trend during the pandemic to prove that makeup sales and mask mandates can be mixed. I speak to the CEO of Elf Beauty next. Welcome back to First Move. Meet Elf Beauty, a digitally native cosmetics company that is one of Gen Z's favorite brands. Elf stands for eyes, lips and face, and the company stands for affordable, cruelty-free and eco-friendly products. Its makeup is sold online and at stores across the United States and internationally at an average cost of $5 for its flagship brand. The company's sales surged during the pandemic, partly due to some savvy marketing that embraced TikTok early. Joining us now is Tarang Amin. He's the CEO of Elf Beauty. Tarang, fantastic to have you on the show. Give it to us in a nutshell or a compact, perhaps I should say. Um, how do you continue to produce growth that's outpacing dramatically, actually, the broader industry? 
Well, you know, I'm really proud of the team. This is our 10th consecutive quarter of growth. Mm. We just announced earnings yesterday with our sales up 50%, the highest quarter we've ever had as a company. And what I really attribute it to is our fundamental value equation. We make the best of beauty accessible to every eye, lip, and face. And I think in these times, that really resonates, as well as the strategy we've been implementing for a few years now that gave us strength going into the pandemic, throughout the pandemic, and even stronger now. So really proud of the team and what we've been able to accomplish in a very difficult environment. I mean, part of what's driving this as well is that you guys are marketing and and PR digital gurus, quite frankly. Whoever's running that needs a raise. Um, I was looking at it at the quarter before last. I think the the budget that you were spending was around 15% of net sales. You can tell me for for the most recent quarter, you are pumping money into the digital strategy and into marketing your products wherever they are around the world. And, And surely this is crucial too. People are aware of what you're doing and the price point works. No, absolutely. And, I, you know, I'm so proud of our team on the level of consumer engagement we, we get. In a recent survey, we were the second most favorite brand amongst Gen Z, up from the ninth position just a couple of years ago. And I think it really talks about our marketing and digital efforts. Uh, we have very strong ROI behind them. And so we continue to invest more. We just took up our marketing and digital investments to 15 to 17% of net sales. And that's up quite significantly from just even a couple of years ago. And we're doing that because it's working. Consumers are really responding and uh, it's continuing to drive great sales. I mean, I think it was 12% last year because I was looking at that as well. I mean, you are, as as we've both discussed, ramping up. Um, But you're also being sort of quite innovative as well. I mean, we talk about NFTs, non-fungible tokens on this show. And I know you you launched an an NLT, just got the E in there with the FT and the EL, um, into crypto cosmetics, which um, you can talk about. But you also surveyed... Um, your users or what you call fans. And I believe around 70% of them are fans of video games, 65% like to watch video gaming. So you launched a Twitch channel too. I mean, again, these are sort of smart moves outside of of the products themselves. Can this kind of move sustain the growth that you're seeing though? So it's sort of a positive, but is it a drawback at some point? Well, we've been disrupting the beauty industry for 17 years, ever since right. we were created selling cosmetics online, you know, incredible values. People thought we were crazy. And so we continue, it's in our DNA to continue to disrupt our campaigns on TikTok, our latest campaign, TikTok Gamers Got Talent, had over 17 billion views. As you mentioned, we got into Twitch and live streaming, mainly because we always follow our consumers and where are they and what do they want to see. And a number of them are active gamers. They watch video games on Twitch and YouTube. Um, NFTs, we call them NLFTs, getting into the (laughs) non-fungible tokens by taking three of our beloved products dipping them in digital gold and having them sell out in nine minutes. So we're always looking for different ways of engaging with our community. Uh, They respond, they love our new products, and uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. I know. Paulus Putty Primer was one of them, but clearly you're not doing anything with that in in digital form, but you could admire it. And I did see they sold out incredibly quickly. Um, I think obviously towards the pandemic as well, and I made the point as we were sort of teasing the interview that people were wearing masks. So for other brands, it meant, you know, you're not going to buy you're not going to buy as many makeup products. You're probably not going to buy expensive products online in case you get it wrong as well, because these are things that you need to test in practice, which again, I think, in some way plays to your business model at the, the, the cheaper price point too. Um, what proportion of your sales today are online versus in store? And where do you see that going? Yeah, so doing uh, online in the latest quarter was about our digital business, about 13% of our sales. 
partly because we have very strong distribution around the world, uh, particularly in the U.S. And, you know, that group, it was only about 9%, 8% a couple really a couple of years ago. So we're continuing to see strength digitally goes back to our roots. Um, and then I'd say, you know, our portfolio continues to expand and grow. So not only is Elf Cosmetics a very strong brand, but we've had real success in skincare with Elf Skin and our growing portfolio. We acquired Well People, the plant-powered uh, clean beauty brand in early 2020. We launched Key Soul Care with Alicia Keys, a groundbreaking lifestyle beauty brand, really in the beginning of this year. So we continue to innovate, continue to expand the portfolio, and we find the unifying theme of all of our brands. It's absolutely the best of beauty, but made accessible relative to its uh, uh, competitive set. And that goes all the way from kind of average of $5 for Elf Beauty up to the $20 to $30 range on Key Soul Care. And all these brands are resonating. We're having great momentum across each. I mean, you're all over the place, the United States and the UK and in Canada, in China, in India. Where do you see the greatest growth opportunity that perhaps hasn't really tapped into sort of what you're providing here? And can you expand beyond that Gen Z reach? And how do you do it? Is that part of the plan? Are you happy with the clientele that you have? No, absolutely. And I think, you know, we have immense white space everywhere we're at, including our home market of the U.S. You know, I always yeah. say one of our biggest opportunities is any customer we're in, we end up being the most productive brand they'll carry. And yet our footprint is still significantly smaller than some of the large legacy players. Internationally, I'd say there's tremendous white space. We have a very good business in the U.K. We're now starting to expand across Western Europe. Uh, key soul care. We're expanding in eight countries with uh, Duglo. Oh, what a shame. But I think you got the gist there. Clearly, I have an interest in makeup. Turang, I'm in there, the CEO of Elf Beauty. Oh, Turang, are you there? I'm oh, here. Oh, you're back. You can just finish yeah. what you were saying there quickly. We have about 35 seconds left. Yeah, so what I was saying is that we uh, have tremendous white space. I'm proud of the work the team has done, and I just see uh, a long track. Uh, road ahead of us as we continue to make progress and continue to engage consumers, not only Gen Z, but well beyond that with our brand portfolio. Perfect. And don't forget the uh, pay rise for your digital team as well. <laughs> I mean, great to have you with us. The CEO of Alfuji, no comment. I can see that there. We'll speak to you again soon, sir. Thank you and congrats on the earnings. All right, up next, vaccines usher in a summer of love, not just for daters, but for jewelers and wedding planners too. We take a look at the business of post-facts. Romance, next. Thanks to vaccines, business is booming and love is blossoming across the United States this summer. And wedding planners, jewelers and dating apps certainly know it. As CNN's Claire Sebastian reports. <laughs> For Shane Williams, months of COVID restrictions had been leading to this moment, and it didn't disappoint. I originally had it planned for actually December of 2020 in Quebec. When the pandemic prevented them from traveling, the lawyer from New Jersey used that setback to save up. He hired a proposal planning company and even added a few more diamonds to the ring. COVID, that was such a rough year. Um, it was just... We were locked in the apartment the whole time, and I really wanted to spend some time and make it special. So I decided to wait until we could come to New York. Did he exceed your expectations? He did. For professional proposal planner Tatiana Caicedo, it's been a busy summer. 
and an emotional one. Very often clients saying that his partner went through a lot this year and they want to do something nice for them. So, yes. Nice year to be able to provide that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> After months of fear and isolation, love, it seems, is back. Jewelers report engagement ring sales are soaring and Google says search interest in dating hit a five-year high in July. Here in New York, around two-thirds of adults are now fully vaccinated. So despite concerns about new variants, Sunset brings datas flocking to Manhattan's waterfront. Many who we spoke to, couples who got together during the pandemic. It feels like we're just starting to date because we're just now getting to get out and get to know each other in other settings. Yeah, we still have not yet seen our first maybe together. We met on Hinge in uh, middle of, or beginning of May last year, so right in the middle of she it She swiped left, I swiped right. We've been locked up for so many, or for so many months now. It's like now you can actually enjoy love. And for the dating apps that made this possible, the summer brings new marketing opportunities. Dating app BLK, which caters to the black community, Open up BLK, yes, okay, yeah. releasing this remake of a previous hit from rapper Juvenile. I will say since the release of Vex that thing up, we've definitely seen a spike in registrations, like 30% more registrations than like four week prior trends. And like many dating apps, BLK now lets you filter for vaccination status with its Vaxified badge. To date, we've had over 180,000 BLK users add the badge to their profile. Um, and we found that over half of our users, they want to know if their match is vaccinated or not. So while it's clear COVID changed the way people date, it also helped many realize what really matters is the people you love. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. Okay, and finally on First Move, I have a really rubbish story for you. A family from Ohio are breathing a sigh of relief after a disastrous cleaning mystique when they threw and accidentally threw out an envelope containing $25,000 in cash. It was destined for landfill, but they called the waste collection company just in time. Couldn't believe it. It took 10 minutes and I actually, I seen it. I said, man, that looks just like that. Pulled it off, opened it up, and there, there was the package inside with the money in it. They were, they were so happy, they were tearing up. The company says it's rare to find something a customer has mistakenly thrown away. And of course, we salute the honesty of the workers who found it. Big sigh of relief. That's it for the show. Stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.